Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to Providence St. Joseph Health medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Renee Rafferty, a licensed professional counselor and regional director of behavioral health at Providence, Alaska. And today we're answering your questions about seasonal affective disorder. Remember, everyone, all of our questions come from our listeners via social media. We can be found on Twitter at PSJH and on Facebook under Providence St. Joseph Health. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc, that's hashtag Talk with a Doc, for a chance to hear your questions on our episodes. Just a quick reminder for everyone today as we're talking about mood disorders, if you or anyone listening needs to, you can always get help available at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that number is 1-800-273-8255. And before we get started, we're going to remind our listeners that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. All right, well, let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Renee Rafferty. Thank you. So Renee, we're talking about SAD, seasonal, what is it? Affective disorder? Yes. All right. So tell us what that means. So really it's, um, when we look at seasonal affective, it's another mood disorder and it's related to the seasons and most like most often happens in the winter. Um, it can happen in, in summer months for people, but generally your mood changes and, um, worsens in symptoms, um, based on the weather. And you're a behavioral specialist, right? What's your background? Well, I'm a licensed um, professional counselor, and I specialize in treating trauma, but I'm also the regional director of behavioral health for the Alaska region. So you would be able to answer the question then, if I have SAD, is I, am I actually clinically depressed? It is a diagnosis, and it is part of the mood disorder um, family in terms of being able to, and really when we diagnose someone, we're giving them a collection of symptoms with a treatment path. And so certainly seasonal affective disorder does have that clinical path, and we use light therapy and other types of um, you know, modalities that in- involve self-care to be able to help you navigate um, decreasing the symptoms associated with the seasons changing and your mood being impacted. So you're talking about treating the symptoms. Is there a cure? Well, I think that, um, you know, certainly people have a lot of success um, using some of the light therapies as well as some of the behavioral changes that we teach people. Um, and so certainly that that may be something that people have to continue to do over time when they notice that and when they have been diagnosed with this, it may not go away, but the strategies are very effective. And does it typically last all year long? No, it typically has, you know, kind of the the scope of the winter, and and it certainly is something that, um, you know, is different onset for different people, you know, depending on where you live. About 10% of people um, in northern climates have seasonal affective disorder, so it does does really impact the northern cultures, you know, a little bit more than than people in other, um, you know, in in areas that are not as, as wet and dark and cold. I guess it is called seasonal, so that would lead you to believe that it is seasonal-based, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, what typically causes it? So there's about the same time every year when the seasons change and you start to see less daylight um, and the temperature changes, you people will um, be, you know, kind of experience a decrease in energy and a feel moody. It can be depressed every day or nearly every day, losing interest in activities, um, you know, having problems sleeping, experiencing changes in appetite or weight, feeling sluggish or mm-hmm. agitated, um, concentration, a sense of hopelessness can come along with it. Um, and they can, you can also have thoughts of suicide associated wow. with it. So it's a serious, Very serious. M- mood disorder as well. 
Well, you're here in Alaska, northern climate. I assume you must see maybe a higher propensity here. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't know what the recent incidence is. I certainly know that um, that we we do screen for it and we talk about um, you know the challenges we have here. It's a kind of a actually part of the daily culture. Sometimes people, I think, will diagnose themselves with it um, just based on how they feel. They may not meet the diagnostic criteria. They're just saying that this is how they feel. Um, but I think that's important to pay attention to and to try to, to engage in some self-care or some treatment and, and att- reaching out to your primary care physician to, to be screened for this particular mood disorder, I think is, is an excellent opportunity, um, regardless of where you live. But I do think when, you know, in Alaska, we start to talk about, you know, immediately we're heading into the, to losing daylight and get down to the, you know, three, four hours of daylight a day in where I live, but there in some areas there's, there's um, minimal daylight mm-hmm. at all. And so paying attention to the fact that that could be more impactful, um, when you live without daylight, we certainly, you know, struggle with not having as much vitamin D up here because right. in the winter, cause we don't, we don't have as much sunlight. Well, you talked about screening. What does screening look like? So you can go in and talk with your professional about the symptoms you're experiencing and the onset and the timing of, um, you know, when you're experiencing. And so really that's going to be best with a primary care or a mental health professional. They'll be able to do, it doesn't actually take very long, um, but you might need a full, um, you know, psychological assessment too, if there's other things going on like trauma, um, or you're you're just having other challenges that may be other mood disorders associated with that. So really getting a mental health or a medical professional to help you with that is, is the most important thing. So not really an easy test or blood work or anything? No, I think going in and, and talking with your provider is the best way to do it. And I think being able to track and notice um, your symptomology is important as well. You can help your provider do better diagnosis when you're paying attention to what's happening for you too. Yeah. Well, we talked a little bit about cold climates or amount of sunlight per day. Do you see it happen in places though, like California or other places where they don't really have season changes? Yes. I mean, you can have seasonal affective disorder in, in different climates. It does not, it is not only in Northern climates. Hmm. Um, and is it the same as what we hear people refer to as the winter blues? Yes. Um, I, I don't think it's, I mean, certainly that is the difference between a diagnosis and something just somebody experiencing challenges with the seasons. Um, but when, when you, when you have something like the winter blues, people are trying to identify what it means. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so really the progression of symptoms is where the diagnosis comes in when they're persistent and intense and, and, and the list of symptoms that we were just talking about, you know, if somebody's having um, suicidal thoughts and they really are experiencing seasonal affective disorder, that, that to me is better described with seasonal affective disorder rather right, than right. winter blues. But I think that the more we give, um, opportunity to identify, is this something that is causing enough harm that we get, we can we need extra help is really important. So the terms are are, are sure. at least a, a direct pointing us in the direction that we might need some help. Well, you also mentioned that you have a lack of vitamin D with a lack of sunlight. Do things like taking vitamin D do they make a difference? Yeah, and I think that's a great conversation to have with your primary care provider about you know what what how would this impact my mood if I was able to 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 um, you know if I get a diagnosis is vitamin D a strategy as well just like the light therapy is mm-hmm. also something that you, you know we recommend when it's diagnosed but um, but also you know it's not going to harm you if that if you try to do that and it is important to to I think talk with your primary care provider because they can talk to you about the importance of how far away does the light need to be mm-hmm. what angle does it need to be at what's the strength of the light those are all good things that um, your provider can help you with what actually is light treatment 
So it's basically impacting your brain um, to be able to kind of reverse the impact of of this this the season or or minimize the impact. So it's it's kind of tricking your brain and giving you um, the the um, necessary chemicals to be able to help give you a, a boost in your mood. And so while I'm not a physician and the brain mm-hmm. science is not is not something that I'm as comfortable in, I certainly know that I've seen impact um, positively from the light therapy. And do you have to go to a doctor for light therapy or can you get one of the light therapy boxes for your home? You don't have to go to a doctor. I recommend that if you're struggling with those severe symptoms to get the screening to know if you really mm-hmm. have the diagnosis is helpful. But, um, you know, the light therapy, people use it and they don't have a diagnosis and, and they report it's helpful. It's not going to harm you. Mm-hmm. Well, here's a good question, because I can imagine that this is a little bit uh, polarizing. Are tanning beds good for helping with SAD? You know, I'm actually not familiar with that. I don't really know if they're helpful. I've heard people say that anecdotally. That's not a prescription that we provide. Um, so I, that's, I, I actually couldn't really speak to that. Well, I have had other talk with the docs, and it has been about skin conditions. And I will tell you that they definitely tell you not to go to a tanning bed. So <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think I, probably no. I think that the the risks are high enough that even if there is a benefit, um, nobody you know that I've heard in the medical field is recommending that the, the tanning bed outweigh beds. The, the possible <laughs> negatives, right? Yes. Um, is craving this is a great question because I'm I'm craving high carb foods right now. Is this a sign of sad? You know, um, you can see craving or weight gain um, or, you know, in any kind of mood disorder. It certainly doesn't indicate and, you know, be the the only, deter- you know, determining factor. But I think that we, we notice that, you know, craving high-carb foods can be associated, you know, with depression. We see weight gain sometimes happen with depression um, that can be associated to different factors, not just um, craving carbohydrates. I really do, though, seem to crave more high-carb foods in the winter. Is that is that typical? You know, I think that um, comfort foods are something that's part of our culture as well. But And I think that, you know, a good thing to do is to talk with your dietitian about those types of, of cravings that you have and to look at your overall um, connection to food. I know we do spend time talking about being able to, you know, make sure that that food is a part of any type of healing that you're doing and looking at what you're putting into your body does matter. And mm-hmm. so if you're noticing that with your mood disorder, you're struggling around that, you know, a therapist and a dietitian and a physician can help you come up with a plan that's best for you. But also knowing that we, um, you know, want to have balance in our diet and those and carbohydrates are a good thing for your body too, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, here's another question. At what point do I decide to see a doctor if I think I have SAD? I think any symptoms that interfere with functioning. So if you start to feel depressed or you're having um, any inability to do the things that you normally would do, I think having that conversation with your physician um, or a a behavioral health care professional I think primary care is easy because you're already going there for checkups, hopefully, and it's you, having that conversation and getting the screening there, I think, would be really helpful. But um, but certainly, if you have thoughts of suicide, you want to go immediately and get support, um, either from a crisis line or from your primary care physician. But I look at, you know, when you have, you're experiencing symptom, symptom and you think it might be related to a mood disorder and it's interfering with your life um, in, in e- even small ways where you just feel like you can't um, enjoy the same things that you used to, mm-hmm. the, it's worth starting that conversation and thinking about what the strategies would be to, to help with that. So when we talk about mood disorders, for people who maybe don't know, what, what are those otherwise known as? 
So you'll hear things like depression, bipolar, you know, we have um, disruptive um, mood disorder and, you know, things where your irritability, your ability to manage your feelings, and we often call them affective disorders, mm-hmm. um, you'll hear them called that. Things that where your ability to um, to manage your feelings, manage your behaviors, um, and, and feel um, a normal sort of flow of, of daily emotions, that gets disrupted and you feel either, you know, depression, for example, is one where you have that loss of appetite, the loss of energy, the inability to concentrate. All of those things are, are part of the affective disorders and each one can be diagnosed based on a set of symptoms by a mental health professional or a physician. Well, you mentioned maybe not wanting to get out of bed. I would assume in northern climates like this, it's harder to get out of bed when it's so cold and it's dark. Yeah. How does that impact people here? Increasing sleeping in the winter is a normal human component. I think we all kind of hibernate mm-hmm. just a little bit more. And I think that having knowing that that you're, you know, in the summer months, we are all we're all excited that, you know, in June that you've got a full day of sunlight and you don't really you just see dusk and you're more you're going to do more things we fish we're outside we're doing tons of things and in the winter you do see less of that and so where you would start to see it being a real problem that it's not um you're you're beyond sort of the normal process that we have of hibernating and and sort of coming out in the the summer and being out in the light more often is when it's you're not able to reach out to your your support systems when you don't want to go to work when the normal things that you need to do to get your life functioning and take care of your family or yourself those things are not happening and so in Alaska we certainly see you know those ebbs and flows and and you might think um, about getting support with seasonal affective disorder if if that normal ebb and flow is is being disrupted. I will say that I love to visit Alaska and I love to visit in the months where I can get up and go for a run and it's beautiful, but not so much when I get up and it's still dark and it's so cold. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we noticed too that, um, you know, the darkness is always mitigated by the snow because the snow is quite bright. And so in this month, like right now, you'll start to see that the light's going away and there's not the snow out. And so people will talk about, you know, that's a little bit harder. It's harder to see things when you're driving. It's harder to, you know, to be able to motivate to get outside and go do the fall yard work, um, you know. So I think that, you know, noticing that and then coming up with self-care strategies will also help you know if you need to go in to see someone too. So being able to notice like maybe I do need to walk 10 minutes a couple times a day to get my, um, you know, my heart rate going and to, you know, boost my, um, the hormones that are going to be able to help me feel good. But you, you want to be able to, um, to try new strategies that fit for you. Some, for me, somebody telling me to go out and exercise for an hour is not going to work. I like the smaller doses of of (laughs) self-care. Absolutely. Well, this is a great topic and I think we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we're going to dig into some self-care options.
we're back with Talk with a Doc and our guest, Renee Rafferty, who's a mental health expert, and we are talking about seasonal affective disorder. And Renee, right before the break, we were talking about self-care techniques, and I think that's such an important topic around this. Um, Can you maybe give people listening a few examples of what that might look like? Well, I think first and foremost, it's looking at what is the next step in wellness that you want. So if you're suffering with feeling sluggish, how can you... Um, get more sleep or more movement and eat the right things. And so looking at, you know, that doesn't have to be a total, you know, overhaul of everything. It's what's the next step in self-care that's best for you. And and so when I think about that, I, I think about it in terms of how can I start with a breathing exercise? Breathing exercise is pretty amazing. Four, seven, eight breathing. It's a breath technique where you breathe in for four, you hold for that. seven and mm-hmm. out for eight. Mm-hmm. And it feels a little bit strange when you're first doing it, but it has some some great impact on the brain and allows for you to start to get calm and relax. And then next you can start to then plan maybe something. It's hard to plan when you're not calm. And so right. breathing or movement, I also recommend as like the first kind of steps when we're thinking about self-care because they they impact the nervous system and they help you to to get um, to that next level. Sometimes you're not ready to go to a yoga class mm-hmm. or necessarily do 10 minutes of meditation, but infusing one minute like every couple of hours mm-hmm. can have a bigger impact than you realize. And those are great recommendations. And then looking at food, not trying to like cut everything out that you've determined is bad, but maybe add some foods in that actually do help you feel well. So, you know, fruits, vegetables, things that you, um, you're not necessarily having to cut anything out yet, but start the step with being able to, to add something that is good for you in and really stop and spend some time being grateful for the small changes. I think we're really hard on ourselves that we've got to do a huge, when we start to notice we have some challenges with our mood whether it's, um, you know, something that's diagnosable or just we're struggling in the moment. Um, we want to, like, feel like we're going to be a champion the next day and have done everything right. It's the little um, changes that over time make a difference and help to, to prevent or to ease an illness that we're experiencing. I think people do that to themselves all the time. It's like you're not going to get up and run a marathon if you haven't run yeah. in your entire life. No. You're going to start <laughs> for walking and then you're going to walk longer and then you might jog, right? Same thing. Yeah. yeah. And I like some of the um, strategies with cognitive behavioral therapy that we all um, can benefit from, which is being able to write down your thoughts that are that are um, maybe not serving you, the ones that sound more like, I can't do anything right, something's wrong with me, I'm broken, why do I have this mood problem when right. somebody else doesn't? And then on the other side of the page, write down things like, it's okay to struggle, I don't know what other people are feeling on the inside. I only see their outsides. A lot of times we compare ourselves and we don't really know what's happening for others. And to be able to to say things like, I have value, it's okay to get help. Starting to identify the positive cognitions that shift you out of feeling stuck. I think that can be a really important self-care piece as well. Sometimes just having, saying to somebody, hey, I want you to listen. I don't need any advice, but I was just wondering if we could Mm -hmm. talk for a little bit and I could share. And that asking that other person to hold space and not try to fix it is kind of important part of it. That's a tough one though, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because a lot of us want to go and fix for other people the problems associated, you know, with someone else's life because we feel better and we feel less anxious. Well, actually, you don't want to take away um, the other person's ability to share with you by trying to do too much. Your discomfort just needs to be managed by taking a deep breath and listening to the other person and saying, we all have a wealth of wisdom inside of us. And when we reach out first to just be listened to, that's a great step. And if they need more, 
then being able to ask, how can I help you? How can I support you in getting more help from either a professional or from family and friends and resources in the community? Are there other self-care things that people can do that <clears throat> maybe don't cost a lot? Because I think when we say self-care, people automatically think of, I'm going to go get a massage, I'm going to do this, and I don't have the money to do it. Is it just as simple as taking a walk sometimes? Yeah, I think self-care has, um, there are so many strategies. I love the Greater Good Science Center that's online, and they have a whole bunch of strategies that are free <laughs> and yes. um, involve relaxation, involve connection to others, involve using, um, you know, the some of the um, strategies in exercise to help and and but at the same time gratitude and the expression of awe and wonder um, mindfulness when you when you think about just pre being present in the exact moment can happen by walking outside and smelling flowers that has a melody right, has right. a um, a boost for your brain or hugging people is pretty powerful as well. Um, I always recommend we need eight hugs a day <laughs> to get the oxytocin um, oh, I love support that. that we need. I'm going to hug her as soon as we're done. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, Renee, how does serotonin relate to SAD? Well, there's still a lot to learn about how serotonin um, plays a role in that, but we do believe that the decrease in light exposure um, also decreases serotonin levels and melatonin also, we feel like that's another hormone that's impacted okay. by the changes in season as well. And so one of those, um, the strategies that we, um, implement is when you're having those lower level symptoms that maybe aren't interfering with all of the functioning, but is to get out and seek more light. See if you can, you can try the light box like we talked about, but also just, um, being able to try to get outside. And then as the, it progresses, the talk therapy, the light therapy, um, and talking with the provider about other medications are options. When you say melatonin, I mean, most of us think about melatonin for sleep. Right. So is, is taking melatonin better for you if you have SAD? Um, you know, I think that sleep is really important in any type of affective disorder and, um, melatonin can be helpful for periods of time and physicians can work with you around that. Um, low doses of melatonin are, are sometimes prescribed, um, for around sleep to help with the overall affective disorder, not just with SAD, but those are great conversations to have with your, with your provider to be able to see if you need to address that as well. Just, I think the overall look at how you're taking care of yourself when you're having those symptoms and trying to see which strategy works best for you, because sometimes if you get moving, that can also really help with, um, an affective disorder um, like sad if you're, and then your, your sleep gets better. So it depends on right. which, which right. area you want to work on and focus on first and which one, which symptom is the worst for you. I'm glad you said low dose though, because I, I have found with people that they think if one melatonin is good, three or better, right? So you're taking like 15, 20 milligrams, but everything I've read is that your body doesn't even really produce more than three take at a time. No. And in fact, there's newer research out that talks about, um, 0.5 melatonin. Wow. Um, so really pretty low dose. Yeah. Um, and so I think just those are great discussions, like I said, to have yeah. with providers and to look at the newest research to see what is best for, and there's other, there's other, um, ways that melatonin can be, can be helpful other than just like the difficulty onset with sleep. There's, mm -hmm. there's other things that could be used for, but, um, but those are things that people want to look into and really figure out what fits best for them. So again, let's go talk to your providers. And for those listening, make sure you have a primary care provider. Great. Yes. <laughs> is light therapy impacting serotonin? Yes. Okay. So that is one of the options too. Yes. Okay. Because I know we talk a little bit about medication, but it seems like there's a lot of other options people should be looking at. Yes. I think that 
anytime you are looking at a mood disorder or some type of mental health or substance use diagnosis, there are many, there are multimodal strategies that allow for healing. And I would say that, um, you know, anytime you can employ more than one strategy, you're, you're going to have better success and you're teaching yourself about wellness. Wellness comes from not just the healthcare, um, world. It comes from also paying attention to our spiritual needs, reaching out to, um, to something bigger than us. And that doesn't have to be religious. It can be volunteering, can have an impact in our mood and help us to feel better. And we want to be figuring out, we notice in, in some of the more, um, bigger studies on what actually helps people heal. And it's that feeling of hope and relationships to other, whether it's a therapist or whether it's a recovery community or whether it's our family and friends or being joining and being part of something, all of those are really, really important, um, strategies that we need to employ. I think the hope thing is really interesting because uh, one of the therapists we talked to within the Providence Network actually talked about, especially people in climates like Alaska, that if they plan a vacation, even if they don't end up taking the vacation, the the effect of planning it and thinking about it and looking at the places seems to help them get happier because it's a sense of hope. Absolutely. It's amazing what we do when we shift our mindset. Our brains like to scan for what's going to go wrong. And when we can shift (laughs) our mind into a place where we're imagining what things could be, it's very powerful. Cognitive behavioral therapy is based on being able to shift out of that thoughts and to move into more adaptive thoughts that allow our behaviors to be adaptive as well. And so strategies can be, I'm going to move first and then change my thoughts, or I'm going to change my thoughts and then move. Both of those things make a difference and and planning to go somewhere and be outside of your um the normal daily routines can be can be very powerful sometimes it's it's work as well and it's a little bit uncomfortable sometimes to plan something that you don't know what's going to happen you know um but but that is that that discomfort is okay a little bit of discomfort actually isn't a problem it's um we don't want that to limit us in trying new things because when you try a new self-care activity you're not going to go oh this feels great all the time right. and so it may deter you and so you might want to notice it to to say soothing things about you know it's uncomfortable to talk to my primary care provider it's uncomfortable to be able to um try to change my behavior and as long as i can move through that discomfort with kindness towards myself you start to see an increase in comfort if you're being really harsh to yourself and saying you should be doing it better or it's you don't give yourself much credit that you're trying something new oftentimes people will quit self-care and it and you have to admit that it's vulnerable to say that you need it and sometimes we want to believe that you know we just we don't need any of that stuff but we really do interesting because when I started meditating, it was very uncomfortable for me and I kept failing at it, (laughs) which made me more stressed. Yes. But it's actually funny. I saw a meme this morning, actually, that said um, some of the best self-care is just getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. Well, I can admit that I was doing yoga in my early 20s and I was the girl that got up and left at the end when you're supposed to be in relaxation pose I was like I'm out I'm done I'm done and I never even really got it it was like you know to me that didn't even feel like that was part of the the workout you know I just didn't I couldn't do it and it was I think back to that and I'm like oh my gosh that's the most one of the most important parts about being in a practice of self-care is to allow yourself to appreciate the work that you've just done to to scan your body to notice it to strengthen the relaxation we often strengthen um 
you know, things that we think have value, like our muscles or pay attention to that, uh, strengthening the sense of relaxation and calm mm-hmm. and practicing that is equally valuable, but, but not so easy to pay attention to. Oh, that's great advice. Well, one question that we got, I thought was really interesting is can kids get seasonal affective disorder? Yes, kids can get seasonal affective disorder, and it's important to be able to, um, you know, engage your pediatrician in that diagnosis as well. And um, I think the more that we talk with kids and recognize when they get mood disorders, um, the earlier treatments, all the self-care that we were talking about, all the other modalities can be very effective in treating those as well before they become diagnosable. But if you see a, a child struggling significantly in the winter months, and, and um, I, would, I would absolutely um, want to, to engage our healthcare professional. And parents should just look for those typical signs that you were talking about, not wanting to get out of bed, having mood disorder, like strange swings in mood, food, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, You know, I can remember when I was younger, you know, just playing outside in the dark just as much as I did in in the winter. And I have, you know, worked with clients that have said, you know, in the winter, I remember as a kid really struggling with being able to even be motivated. And they kind of knew that they always wanted to be in a different climate because the winters were so rough for them. And so paying attention to that is really important because it, it, it is something that, um, you know, can impact you when you're younger. Well, is it genetic? So if, uh, this was a question, if, will I be more likely to get it because my mom has it? All mood disorders do have some genetic component, but we, we don't have as much knowledge about individual, um, affective disorders. And so, so I would say that, um, you know, knowing that is helpful because it kind of helps you pay attention, but it doesn't necessarily predict. Well, do you think there's still a stigma behind even something as, you know, common as seasonal affective disorder? Yes, I would say that stigma is present. I mean, we definitely see that with bipolar, that people are, you know, that's a, it can often be a disease as it progresses that can be very devastating for people. And so, but I would also say that something like seasonal affective disorder can be really um, debilitating for people. And so, you, you know, anytime that we start to talk about not being able to function in our mood, our culture just does not seem to embrace the idea that that's a human quality. It it feels like something's broken. And so the more that we talk about that as just being also something that is a a human condition and does need to be treated, the better off we are. Um, but I, but I do think it's embarrassing for people to talk openly about things with their mood. Do you think seasonal affective disorder though is like quote unquote less embarrassing for people? That's hard to say. I mean, I, I think that it's, it's a, you do hear about a little bit more Mm -hmm. and the the therapies feel a little bit less intrusive in the sense that, you know, the light box is often what people hear about when you're treating that. So I think, um, you know, we would, we would probably be more likely to admit that. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but I know that overall just saying that, you know, I want to go and talk to my provider still is a challenge for people. And so the more that we create that, the, the, that education for physicians about how do they have the conversation to just normalize it, the better off we are. And that's where the integration of behavioral health into primary care is so key. I just ask, cause I hear people say the winter blues a lot. And I wonder if they really think of it as a disorder at that point. Yeah. I think disorder still feels hard to say out loud, even if it's a medical one. I think we all kind of want to be healthy and well. And so part of it is accepting that our body does bring us information and and brings us things that we have to work on. And, um, the more we can accept that mental health issues are part of our, of being human, the better, the less, um, likely we'll be to be alone in it and not get the care we need. 
you are not alone is a really huge thing to remind people. And I also want to remind people, anyone listening who may be struggling with emotions, um, help is available for you always at the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline by calling 1-800-273-TALK. Again, that number is 1-800-273-8255. So Renee, I just want to thank you for joining us today on Talk with the Doc and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence St. Joseph Health. Make sure to follow us on social media at PSJH on Twitter and on Instagram and under Providence St. Joseph Health on Facebook. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, visit future.psjhealth.org. Thanks for listening.